Hello and welcome to the Broadway Binge Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Hannah. And we are going to tell you the history of American musical theater by reviewing and ranking all of the most important musicals from Showboat 2 today. Today we'll be discussing My Fair Lady from 1956 with book and lyrics by Alan J. Lerner, music by Frederick Lowe, based on the play Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. Word! Uh, welcome, <laughs> Hannah. It's nice to see you in person yes, today. I'm in New York, as you can probably tell from the slightly superior sound quality. No, um, it actually sounds really good. From, I, from Philly? So there's yeah. really no gain? Is no, I mean, there's me? a gain in, like, in like personality. In person, enjoy that we feel. Half an hour less of us waiting to record, because we're trying to figure out how to make G-chat work. Does that feel necessary? Does that feel helpful to me? I mean, it's not all your fault. I think it's, like... It's mostly my fault. We can we can accept that it's my fault. Yeah, okay, um, well... Oh, I just spilled coffee. Everything's going really well. I'm so happy to be in New York with Jeremy. So today we're talking about My Fair Lady, which a lot of it has been described mm. as quote the perfect musical end quote. I'm yeah. not actually sure where that quote's from, but on the <laughs> Wikipedia page it says people have called it the perfect musical in quotes. Sure. And then like when you try to look and see what the citation is to, it's to a book. So then like I'm not gonna we're go. We're not to gonna the, go to the, the library. library. What do you? Who do you think we are? Yeah. So like, is the author of the book saying that? Are they quoting? Anyway, the point mm-hmm. is, this is a musical that. For my entire life, I've been hearing people, usually people older than myself, saying that this is the perfect musical, this is the best musical of all time. And I think this is the very first musical we've ever discussed on Broadway Binge, where there are still people today in 2018 who genuinely believe this is the best show of all time. Yeah, I'd say we're turning a corner. Uh, more and more, we're right, we're starting to do to talk about shows Jeremy and I actually have some sort of direct experience with. Yes. Uh, which I think uh, it enriches the conversation. Um, my experience with My Fair Lady is I played in the pit for it at Cape Cod Academy High School when I was in maybe 8th or ninth grade. Um, and so, you know, I was of the age where I was really falling in love with theater and loved being a part of the theater program at my school. Uh, this makes me think of Sherelle and the discussion we had about pajama, pajama game. game. I was at that age. Um, That's the only way you could like pajama game. <laughs> if it's introduced to you at Correct. an impressionable age and you're making friends while being in it. Correct. Otherwise, there's no reason to like that show. Well, I, we'll see if we reach a similar conclusion with My Fair Lady. I don't think we will. I don't we'll think see. we will. I don't know. Well, you know, we'll see. Um, but the point is, it was my first ever uh, uh, show playing in the pit band. I'm a drummer and... It was very exciting and uh, a very a very fun time. I spent a lot of time learning this music as a kid, and uh, so that's that's where I'm coming from. What's your experience, Jerry? Um, so my parents showed me the movie when I was probably eight or nine. I've never seen a live version before, so that is a shortcoming. Um, but the movie is a very faithful adaptation from everything I can tell. The songs are all basically moved over pretty much verbatim, um, and I... I've heard all the songs, obviously, for years, you know, whether it's on, like, the Broadway Sirius XM channel with uh-huh. Seth Rudetsky or just, you know, like, <laughs> random people singing them. Like, I know, I, I know Rudetsky. these, yes, it's, that's, <laughs> eventually we'll get Seth on the podcast, but we have oh, to, we have to be, dreams. we have to be famous first. That's the new goal, I think. Um, let's make the, uh, the hashtag for our bot, our podcast, uh, Seth Rudetsky by Hamilton. Nice. That's good. I love yes. that. That's strong. Hashtag okay. Seth Rudetsky by Hamilton. We should come up with a shorter hashtag. But, Maybe. But I no, think... it's good that the content's there. Yeah, right now we've got <laughs> Hamilton scheduled as episode either 100 or 200, something like that. This is like what that, Jeremy so. does when he's not being a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, schedule this stuff. Um, so I remember thinking it was boring when I was little. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie, not the songs. I remember thinking the movie was boring because it was very gray. There was a lot of talking. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this whole thing, they sort of took a lot of text from Pygmalion right. by Shaw and just set music around it. I mean, they didn't just do that. They, <laughs> they really made it work. But it is very play-ish in a lot of ways, which now I love, but when I was a little boy, I didn't. 
So yeah. I went years without watching the movie, and then I watched it again a few days ago for this podcast, and I was like, oh, I get the hype. Uh-huh. I see what they've been talking about. I still would not call it the best musical of all time. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get, yeah, we'll there. get there. But I, I get the hype now. I understand. Yeah. Well, something so what you were just saying that's interesting to me is we've been looking a lot at different shows and how they're crafted, and uh, we talked with Kate Herslin about Peter Pan as an adaptation which to me felt like one of the first adaptations we talked about in a while. We were sort of talking more about like the songs and then the, the book getting layered on later. And this to me feels like, uh, even more so than Peter Pan, like a true adaptation of a play uh, mm-hmm. that you know existed. So I think that's interesting. And I, I, have we talked about another musical that's like really based this purely on a play so far? So... Um, I guess Three Penny, sort of? Three, well, Three Penny was based on opera. Right, right, and right. Oklahoma was based on a play, but it's a play that no one does anymore and no <laughs> right. one's ever read, so right. we, we I have no idea how Yeah, Pygmalion's like its own institution. Yeah. Yeah, it makes me think of um uh I don't know, like West Side Story or something. <laughs> like like a like a classical I mean that's not a good comparison, but like a classical text that we then also created what felt at the time I imagined to be more of a modern musical, you know. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, do you have a quote you'd like to share from a novel yeah. that perhaps would support the discussion in a meaningful yeah. and useful way? Oh, there it is. He's found it. So um, on the subject, it's uh, <laughs> I'm going to go back to my old favorite book uh, by Larry Stemple, Showtime. My old Showtime. favorite book, Showtime. Um, and he talks about how My Fair Lady... So we've sort of gone through a big transformation in Broadway, beginning with Oklahoma, and all of the shows we've talked about after Oklahoma are either shows in the Oklahoma mold mm-hmm. or throwbacks to the pre-Oklahoma mold. Right. Three Penny is probably the most different thing, which is just, it doesn't really fit in any of those categories or any of the new categories that come later. It's sort of a different thing. But now I think for the first time since Oklahoma in 1943, we are actually evolving the form even further. I don't think we've been able to say that about a single show. The other shows have just been better versions of the Oklahoma model. Rogers and Hammerstein just took that Oklahoma model and made the secondary couple, instead of just making them funny, make them tell a political story. Like, they've evolved in that way. Here's a quote from the Stemple book, and it's clearly a quote, but I can't see who it's a quote from, so this is not by Larry Stemple. I don't think Lerner said this, but anyway, here's the quote. By 1954, it no longer seemed essential that a musical have a subplot, nor that there be an ever-present ensemble filling the air with high seas and flying limbs. In other words, some of the obstacles that had stood in the way of converting Pygmalion into a musical had simply been removed by a changing style. Mm. It now seemed feasible to preserve the text as much as possible without the addition of a secondary love story or choreographic integration. What was essential was that every song and every addition to the play not violate the wit and intelligence of Shaw's work. He was an ideal collaborator, Shaw was, because there was so much oblique and unstated emotion that could be dramatized in music and lyrics. That's an interesting point. And sort of um, the, the text that was preceding this quote I gave is basically that people had tried to adapt Pygmalion before. I think Rodgers and Hammerstein themselves had tried to adapt Pygmalion into an Oklahoma-style musical. And Lerner and Lowe, who we'll talk a little bit about in a second, they tried to do it, failed. They couldn't figure out how to add the secondary love plot. They couldn't figure out how to turn it into an Oklahoma-style musical, so they, they tabled it. Hmm. When they came back a few years later, they were like, hey, what if we don't make an Oklahoma-style musical? What if we just fundamentally change what a musical is to make Pygmalion... To, uh, what if we shaped the show to Pygmalion instead right. of shaping Pygmalion to the show? And this was new. No one had done this, like, sort of saying, first, let's take the source material mm-hmm. and then let us build the structure of the show around the source material based on what is appropriate for that source material. And that's why this is the first big evolution after Oklahoma. Dun, 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 dun! 
great. That was a very uh, cogent explanation, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. I feel like um, I really set him up and you really knocked him down. You okay, know? Yeah, perfect. So good work. Um, no, that is interesting, though, to think about. Uh, I didn't know that this was a project they began and then tabled, mm-hmm. um, which is nice. I don't know. I feel like that's always... I don't know. Well, any anytime you hear about a creative process, right, where someone's like, "Oh, this thing," and then they take a long, big step back and they come back to it, often it's really good. Although sometimes it's really terrible. We can probably think of some really bad examples. Too. Yeah, I can think of um, Stephen Sondheim. <laughs> right. I, I think this might just have to do with his age. Um, I think at a certain Shots point. Fired. Well, I mean, he hasn't come out with a new musical in years. I'm sure he'd be the first to admit he's probably sort of aged out of it. But he he would write these. There was this one show for years. It went through several names. Um, what is it even called? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, not Merrily We Roll Along. No, it's not Merrily. No. Um, it was a Sondheim show that was just, it didn't work. So then he tried to redo it later on under a different name, and it still didn't work. And I think he was sort of thinking, if I keep going, eventually it'll work. Right. But the problem is, when he wrote it in the first place, he was just too old to write good theater, and waiting even longer was the last thing he needed to called, salvage it. It was called um, A Little Night Music. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Roadshow. Okay, so Road show. it start. It was called Roadshow at first, and then they renamed it Bounce. So he started right. in the '90s. It was his reunion with Hal Prince after splitting with Hal Prince for a while. Okay, this is what it was. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, we got it. So we got it. <laughs> Sondheim decided in the late '90s to reunite with Hal Prince, who we'd split up from for a while, and they made the show called Wise Guys. Um, which was supposed to star Nathan Lane and Victor Garber, mm. but it was delayed. They renamed it Bounce, and that was supposed to open in 03, and that did open at the Goodman Theater in Chicago, but it didn't do well, so it didn't make Broadway, and then they revised it again called Roadshow, so it was called Wise Guys, Bounce, and Roadshow. That's not a good sign. That's and, not it a good just, sign. and after 08, it just died. Wait, so okay, here's my follow-up question with that in mind. Was My Fair Lady always My Fair Lady, or did it have some bad other name when they were first working on it? Well, so at first, they were thinking of calling it Pygmalion, Right. They weren't sure. A terrible name for a musical. And eventually they did. What happened was actually uh, George Bernard Shaw, My Fair Lady, was one of the possible titles that he had Hmm. considered for the Pygmalion. It was one of his working titles. I think it's a reference to something. And so (laughs) eventually they just, when they were making the musical, they're like, let's take this working title and do it. So Shaw was, how... Shaw was question. dead. Shaw was dead is what I mean. Well, he, realized he, he, was, he wasn't long dead because he, he had... He wasn't long dead, actually, um, there right? Was, yeah, yeah, there was a movie version of Pygmalion in the 30s, and he contributed he to the screenplay. Alive. Yeah. And so he, because Hollywood wants a happy romantic ending, he sort of reworked the story mm. to build in that sort of possible romantic conclusion between Eliza right. and um, the Professor Higgins. And the writers of this musical used the uh, Hollywood version with the Hollywood ending. Right. So they were sort of, it wasn't like they took what Shaw wanted and then killed it and changed it. Right. Uh, Shaw at some point caved into American sensibilities. Mm. Whether or not he should have, he did. And that was the version that was used for this musical. This makes me think of Mary Poppins. Have you seen the movie about, uh, what's it called, where they made the Mary Poppins story? Emma Thompson plays Mary Poppins. That's oh, yeah, yeah. Tom Hanks is, is Tom Walt Hanks Disney. Tom Hanks is Walt Disney. Anyway, sorry. Okay, we have a lot of sidesteps today. Um, so, okay, I think we should get into Learner and Lowe. Yes. Because this is a new, a new duo, um, mm-hmm. new giants on our horizon. Um, yeah. Yes. What, what can you tell us about Learner and Lowe, Jeremy? So, Learner and Lowe, everyone we've done so far is either Rogers and Hammerstein's right. age, and Rogers is a little younger than Hammerstein, but by this point, by the 50s, he's getting pretty old. Um, Hammerstein's getting really old. He's not far from death. 
Right. And everyone else we've talked about is even older than those people, except for like Bernstein and uh, Jerome Robbins and stuff. Right. They're going to be around. But Lerner is probably the youngest one yet. He was born in 1918, um, which for... A real young sprig of garlic. That's not a thing. I yeah, I mean, because Roger, Rogers is... Like, Hammerstein's writing shows in, like, the 19 aughts, and, mm-hmm. and uh, Hammerstein was writing in the aughts, and Rogers is writing in, like, the 30s. So these people, you know, were writing professional shows while Lerner was, like, a young teenager. A wee thing. He was, like, a tween. So Lerner came up on Rogers and Hammerstein, and he paired up with Lowe. Lerner was um, American, and Lowe was actually from Austria. He was uh, Jewish. His father was Jewish. They didn't escape from the Holocaust. They actually left Austria in 1924 because his father received an offer to appear in New York City. His father was a Jewish operetta star. Hmm. So young Frederick came to America in 1924 and wanted to write music for Broadway. That was his idea. Oh. <clears throat> so um, this was like well before the Holocaust and all that, but it's a good thing he got out when he did. Um, he started writing music, and eventually he met up with Lerner, who was about 17 or 18 years younger than him. Wow. Lowe was more the same age as Rodgers and Hammerstein. Right. But Lerner um, really viewed himself. He wanted to be like Rodgers and Hammerstein. And the mini last week, Brigadoon, that was mm-hmm. Lerner and Lowe. That was their first big hit. And they, at that point, were just sort of copying Oklahoma because Lerner was still a kid. Uh, you know, this is like 15 years before My Fair Lady. He was just aping the greats that he saw, and he did a really, really good job of writing a fake Oklahoma. Probably uh, so many people were trying to do fake Oklahomas, and Lerner did the best job of writing the books, the book and lyrics for it. But now at this point, he's a grown up. He's in his 40s, and he wants to do, or his late 30s, and he wants to do his own thing. Right. And that's where their big breakthrough came with My Fair Lady. I don't really have much like interesting biographical information about these two. Um, they just were good theater writers. I mean, I'm going to share what I think is, uh, you know, just terribly clever on my part. Uh, I was we were talking about Lerner and Lowe before we started recording today, and I was like, Lerner and Lowe are the DreamWorks to Roger and Hammerstein's um, Disney Pixar. That, no, and that is <laughs> right? that is so astute. It's completely thank co- you. Like Disney is clearly better than DreamWorks on the whole. But every now but and then, DreamWorks will do a. Sh- a we movie. get a Shrek. Sometimes we get a Shrek. Yes. Okay. And this you is know? their Shrek. This, this is, is their Shrek. Wow. Um, Disney. I that, love this line. Like in the two thousands, Disney kind of sucked, and Shrek <laughs> was better than anything Disney mm-hmm. personally put out. I mean, sure. Pixar, of course, was better, but they were right. owned by Disney at the time. So, at, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this is so is, is my fair lady the Shrek? Maybe I think I think yeah, so. I think, I think so. so. I don't think Camelot is the Shrek. I don't think Camelot's the Shrek. <laughs> I think um, we're gonna talk about Camelot. Yeah, I but think I don't Camelot's think like the Shark Tale, you know, <laughs> or the Shrek Two. Yeah, Shrek Two is no Shrek Two. No, Shrek Two is good. Shrek Two was good. Shrek Three was disappointment. Okay, so with that in mind. Let's see. So we should probably talk about the plot and get into some of the music of My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, like, do we want to touch any more on Pygmalion, or maybe we just sort of pursue My Fair Lady and Pygmalion? Yeah, I'm, yeah. So I mean, the plot of both of them is nearly identical. Right. <laughs> um, Eliza Doolittle. This it's 1913 London. It's um, 1913 London. Eliza Doolittle is a Cockney flower seller, and this uh, fancy professor of English who knows every single dialect and he can tell exactly what street you were born on in London based on your accent. And this is like a thing that you actually could sort of do if you had that training in the uh, 1800s and so. <laughs> if you had um, no friends. Because, and... <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, there was no radio or TV, so like accents really differed uh, sure. based on you know very specific geographical limitations. So uh, this Cockney flower girl gets in his way and he and another professor make a bet that uh, the other professor says, I bet, well... 
Professor Higgins claims that he can turn her into a proper English gentlewoman within six months. And the other professor says, I bet that you can't do it. So they take her in off the streets, put her in good clothes, and spend all day, every day, trying to turn her um, into a fake gentlewoman who can speak and act properly. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's fine to be cockney. I'm not saying, like, properly that she was, like, bad before. But, you know, like, proper, in quotes, Proper, English. in quotes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same as Princess Diaries. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. And he succeeds. <laughs> mm-hmm. She learns to pass herself off really well in polite society, but he's really mean to her. They don't get along. Eventually, this sort of, like, foppish loser named Freddie comes in and falls mm-hmm. in love with her. And in Pygmalion, she just leaves Henry Higgins at the end because he's sort of succeeded... She realizes he doesn't really care about her and only cared about her as sort of an object. Right. So she leaves. Um, and a lot of uh, British theatergoers at the time were outraged. They're like, how can it end here? She should come back and fall in love with Henry Higgins because he starts to sort of regret that she's left and he starts to realize he was taking her for granted. So um, George Bernard Shaw actually wrote a letter, um, <laughs> sort of an epilogue to the public saying, hey, I know you all want Eliza and Professor Higgins to get together at the end, but guess what? They don't. Like, yes. I, I thought you could all tell that they weren't supposed to get together, but since so many audience members think they were supposed to get together, here I am to tell you, guess what? Um, <laughs> if she had gotten with anyone, it would have been Freddie. It wouldn't have been Higgins. So that's canon now. <laughs> Take that. Um, I, this, is this like J.K. Rowling saying that Dumbledore was gay? That's exactly what it was like. <laughs> yeah, he's like, like, if you guys are going to have your own head canon and believe yeah. that something happened, no I'm here to tell you what actually happens next. I didn't want to do this, but I, I have to. But you made me. You forced my hand. But then he okay. sort of took it back for the movie version. And in this, right. they don't explicitly have Eliza and Higgins like falling in love and kissing ever, which I think is good. But they do end up, she ends up moving back in with him at the end of the musical, which I don't know if I like. Yeah, at the end of the musical, I don't, I don't know. I think it's, I, I, yeah, it's a matter of taste. I mean, I guess I remember that ending and it's, it sort of feels implied that like, whether or not it's romantic, like they're going to sustain what, you know, is a real deep friendship. And I think it cheats us a little bit of like what the story of the 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 play is. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's about like a conflict <clears throat> between class and also between the sexes. And I think it's supposed to be painful that like, yeah, he's not a good guy at the end. And like what I like about her leaving him is by the end, like we're actually we're rooting for her. And we're not rooting for like his you know, his his ideas about academia and and you know what makes a person superior. Um and so I think it's sad that she, like, forgives him in the end, you know? Yeah, I mean, so I like, it's sort of interesting. After he lets her go, she's like, where should I go? What's for me? Because she right, she like, goes back to the street and all the people she used to be friends with, and they literally don't recognize her. They think she's a lady, and they're, you know, like, treating right. her like she's fancy. So she doesn't fit in with them, but she also doesn't fit in with polite society where she has no relations, no, no right. real name. So she doesn't fit in anywhere. It sort of reminds me of, like, immigrant narratives I've heard in the past, you know, like people who immigrate to America and feel like they don't fit in, but then they go back to their country after 10 mm. years, and they don't fit in there either. Right. Because now they're American. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sort of reminds me of that. So in a way, the only place she ever really has belonged, at least, I mean, she used to belong on the street, but now the only place I guess she really does belong is with Higgins. But that's not like... And I guess you could say maybe it's heartwarming in the end because she forgives him, and, yeah. she, and he transforms her I mean, there... into something better, and she transforms him into something better, as so they transform each other. That's what, like, a pro My Fair Lady ending person would say. Yeah. Right. I think that there's a version, right, when it's done well, where that's what we're left with. It's like, they both learn, you know, how the other half lives, and he kind of comes down off his high horse. Um, I will say, and this might just be purely ignorant on my part, but, like, I've often 
perceived. Henry Higgins played like a little bit as a dandy, mm. um, which is like, I think in some ways sort of solves the like, you know, unresolved or lack of romantic connection between them. Because how dare there just be a friendship between two heterosexual people on stage? Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I don't know if you you want to speak to that. I feel like I've seen it played that way a couple of times. It might also just be like casting I've been I privy think, to. But. I think casting is so important because also yeah. I've only seen the movie version mm-hmm. and they kept, so they kept Rex Harrison. We'll talk about the casting of Eliza in a second. Mm-hmm. They kept Rex Harrison over from the stage version and at this point he was 10 years older than he had been on stage and on stage he was already quite a bit older, 10, 20, 25 years older than Julie Andrews, who was uh, the star of the stage version. So even that, there was a bit of a gap here. You have um, Audrey Hepburn did the acting on the movie, and she was dubbed for most of the singing by Marty Nixon, who hmm. has made a career doing a lot of dubbing <clears throat> in movies. And Audrey Hepburn, um, it's been debated as to whether or not she should have been dubbed at all, because her singing voice was like probably good enough for the role of Eliza. Right. If you're expecting sort of Julie Andrews quality, yeah, uh, she doesn't have that. I love Julie Andrews. So in the movie, there's absolutely no chemistry between Rex Harrison and Audrey Hepburn. So then in the end, when they get back together, it doesn't feel earned. But I'm excited. Right. There's a 2018 Broadway revival coming, unless yes. Wikipedia is incorrect. <laughs> and it's going to have Lauren Ambrose as Eliza, who I'm not really familiar with, Harry Haddon Patton is Higgins. Mm. He is um, he plays Matthew in The Crown. He's like the assistant private secretary to the Queen. If you watch The Crown, hmm. and then it's also going to have Diana Rigg, the Queen of Thorns, as um, Mrs. Higgins, and Norbert Leo Butts as Alfred Doolittle, Eliza's father. Interesting. So I'm, I can definitely imagine a version of this musical where Eliza and Higgins have chemistry the whole time long, so it feels earned when they get back together, but the movie version, at least, did not feel that way to me. Yeah, I don't know. It's a complicated relationship. I'm interested to know what they'll do with it in 2018, just because, like, I don't know. We're looking at the cover art from the original right now, and it's literally Henry Higgins bent over Eliza, and he has her on, like, what do you call it? The, uh, the puppet, puppeteer. Puppets, pu- yeah, uh, Marionette. Marionette. Oh, yes. So the poster's really interesting. It was by Al Hirschfield. Al Hirschfield, uh, thank you. Or uh, Hirschfeld, who was a really Hirschfeld. famous cartoonist. Um, you've, you've seen his stuff before. He uh, did a lot of New Yorker covers, I think. And the cover is George Bernard Shaw, like a, like a sort of angel up in the clouds with angel wings and a halo, directing <laughs> Professor Higgins on marionette strings, who is then directing uh, Eliza on marionette strings. And this will be the cover photo on broadwaybinge.podbean.com for the episode, so you'll be able to see th- this picture there. So it's great. You have the woman just really all the way at the bottom. Mm-hmm. It's really nice. Um, it just occurred to me why it's called My Fair Lady, why? which I'm sure is from the song London Bridge. Right? London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Yes, you're right. You're right. You're right. My Fair Lady. Yeah. I don't know if that's a really... Uh, at first I was like, what, why, are you t- why are you talking about the Fergie song? <laughs> yeah. That is what I was first thinking Every time you come around my London, London Bridge. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, I love culture. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay, so let's get into it. Um, let's talk about the music. Yes. The music, I'm just going to get out there and say, I think the music's awesome. Yes. From the show. It's super iconic, and it's of a period. It also just feels like definitively Julie Andrews to me. It does. Even though I haven't really listened to her sing it much. It's just like the styling of the songs to me is pure Julie Andrews. Absolutely. Um, so I'll start <laughs> with Wouldn't It Be Loverly. We'll play a bunch of songs. We should play a bunch of this is not Julie Andrews yet. This is Bert. Lots of 
So I just love she's her. amazing. She's just like the school teacher I will always have a crush on. Maybe greatest you know of mean? all time on Broadway. The problem <sighs> she's trying to do like a cockney, a cockney person accent. with a terrible so it's funny to hear her doing yeah, the cockney vowels, but also sounding like really a nice. Trained and British well, it's also just like her trained, intonation yeah. to me is so tied up in like the governess or like you know what I mean? Like she's played such high status yeah. characters, so there's something about her voice to me. That feels very received pronunciation. Yeah. And no matter how no matter how much she tries to mask it, that's not right. what she sounds like. Audrey Hepburn, I think, yeah. did I mean she acted it, she didn't sing in the movie much. Right. I think she did a much better job. Not that I've seen Julie Andrews acting, I've only, I can only listen to her singing. Mm-hmm. But Audrey Hepburn, I mean, she's famous as one of the greatest actresses of all time, and she really shows it in the movie. She really acts the Cockney well mm-hmm. and then acts the proper British well too when she switches into that accent. And Marnie Nixon, one of the reasons she is so famous and so often used as a dubber for these movie musicals is that she does a really good job of you know talking to the actress mm. and mimicking the actress if the actress was better at singing than they are. Right. What was the movie we were watching last week where the dubbing, South Pacific, where South the Pacific. dubbing is so bad. Oh yeah, you gotta go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> it's so bad. Okay, anyway. Okay, um, that's a great song. So that's a great song. Next up... Wait, um, we should acknowledge also, like part of what I really enjoy about My Fair Lady is there's like a whole... A uh, plethora of sort of side characters who are all like street urchins and just like a bunch of like really fun cockney guys mm-hmm. and like that's that song wouldn't it be loverly begins with the ensemble um, and a lot of the other I don't know some some of the most fun in the show is like this ensemble of yes. fun urchins so we'll hear more from them as and, we and we part of what I like about the fun urchin songs is that they all sound like sort of British tavern songs they all sound like Bert from Mary Poppins. Yeah. And like the music itself, like like Lowe wasn't just writing Rodgers and Hammerstein style 20th century Broadway music. He changed the songs to sound like the thing it was about. And he did this really well in Brigadoon, writing sort of Scottish-esque music, sort of taking Rodgers and Hammerstein, like, you know, current American pop music sensibilities through a filter of Scotland. Here, that song is very simple, like, da, 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 da. Like, you can imagine singing it at a tavern or singing at a football game. Um, I'll, I'll play a little bit actually yeah. of that song with Marnie Nixon just to see how she does Cockney in comparison. Okay. This guy again. Not as good. Okay. I'm kind of hard to sing in a Cockney accent. I think she, it's my she kills. I think she does yeah. the best. You, she. Yeah. She doesn't make it sound too pretty because if you make it sound too pretty, I, I I don't want anyone to think I'm insulting Julianne. No, because you'd be a kicked off the show. <laughs> no, I, I think the Audrey Hepburn Marnie Nixon combo is pretty mm-hmm. ideal. Actually, no, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it's also like it's different stylistically, you know. Yeah. Um, so here's another example of sort of something that sounds, you know, like a good old English drinking song. This is the character of Eliza's father, Mr. Doolittle, who's a hilarious comedian just bringing in levity every now and then. So this song doesn't really have to do with anything. It's a good song. Yeah. Okay. That drum part. Yeah. Wait, that, come on, that's my moment. He oh, because you played the drum. He goes with a little bit. Dum bum bum bum. With a little bit. Dum bum bum bum. I literally remember learning that and just nailing it, and it was my moment. Anyway, it's fine. It's fine. Um, we can continue. Yeah, we can continue. We can continue. It's you, fine. You've we'll got a little right bit of drums. You, you got a little bit of drums. I mean, it's fine. Okay, so so that's a, a fun, a fun, charming yeah. song. 
And and that song doesn't have a lot to do with the plot. It's more character development, but a character introduction. But yeah. this show really does the songs. The lyrics are almost more integrated than in the Oklahoma type shows. Yeah. Especially Henry Higgins, he talks mm-hmm. sings because Rex Harrison can't really sing well. He's an actor, not a singer. Yeah, it's all talk so, singing. So they allow him to talk sing, and um, it's it's really well acted, and it's sort of everything he talks because it's talking as much as it is singing. It advances the plot in a way that actual plot is being imparted to you as the song's going on. It's not right. just a character singing about like, I feel this way about this person. He sort of advances things while he goes. Yeah, he's making his arguments through song, which is fun also because like he's a character who's obsessed with language. So there's, I don't know, there's something to me that makes sense about it being a musical in that way because, I don't know, music is lifted language or whatever. I yeah. don't know, play a song. Don't make I'm an ordinary. Right. So here I am, confirmed old bachelor and likely to remain so. After all, Pickering... Wait, that's what I'm an ordinary man. Oh. Who that's desires nothing more than just yeah. the ordinary chance. So this is a song right here. Exactly as he likes and do precisely what he wants. An average man of mine. Of no eccentric will. Okay, I mean we don't need to like listen to that extensively because it's not gonna, you know, like entertain you with song. Um, what's interesting actually when they made the movie version, Rex Harris, usually you sing in advance and then dub they'll they'll play the audio track that you've already recorded and then you sort of move your lips over it or vice versa you could act at first and then you'll have someone in the studio singing the song trying to match their lips from the previous performance but rex harrison basically told them hey i talk sing every single time differently i never do it the same <laughs> way twice so you have to record me talk sing as i go and i mean in movies there was the ability with you know big boom mics to capture audio as the actors were acting but with these songs, you know, he was sort of walking all over. The camera's moving a lot. So they did something that had really never been done in any movie before, and they put a wireless mic on him. Interesting. If you watch for it in the movie, you can actually see he has sort of like a handkerchief in one pocket, but it's way too bulky and rectangle-shaped. So it's like obviously his mic pack in his cardigan pocket, and then he has like the the microphone head in his, hidden in his tie. Like if you look for it, you can kind of tell where it would be. That's funny. It's like and Les Mis, but... Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I actually liked. I, I did like Les Mis. Actually, I, liked. I really liked that they did all the audio live in Les Mis. I think the issue was with the casting. Right. Yeah. But I, th- I think that hot was. Take. I think that I was a good with. choice. Actually, um, not even a hot take. Not even. Not, a hot not take. a hot take. Okay. Anyway, oh. um, that's an interesting point, though. I didn't know that about the movie. That's. And they won an audio Emmy because of that, like because they had to figure out how to do wireless mics in a movie which hadn't really been done before. So. That's so funny that like that was a thing that won an Emmy back in the Oscar. Yeah. Oscar. Did I say right. Emmy? You said Emmy, and I went with it. Okay, I, was, I just went right yeah. along with it. Yeah, it was an Oscar. I'm Damn sorry. It. Okay, give us another song. Um, okay, so eventually they teach her to speak, and she does. Oh, we, just you wait, Henry Higgins. I mean, we definitely need the rain in Spain. Okay, but just, just you wait comes fine. next. This is like a famous song. She's pissed off at him. Just you wait, Henry Higgins. Just you wait. She's doing Cockney Love. Yeah, she's doing well. It's also a lower song, which is easier, I think. Also, Wouldn't It Be Loverly is the, like, I want song, like, a whole new world. Mm -hmm. So that had to be pretty. Actually, what's interesting about this, I'll skip to the movie. This is the one song where they did not cover Audrey Hepburn with Marnie Nixon because it's like a simple enough song that's not supposed to sound pretty. They just oh. kept Audrey Hepburn's voice. So here you'll hear what Audrey Hepburn sounds like when she's singing. And like I feel like they probably could have let her do the whole thing, but here we go. Deja vu. 
Just you wait in me against just you wait. She's fine. You'll be sorry, but your tears will be too light. You'll be broke and all that money will all help you damn be funny. Just you wait in me against just you wait. I mean, the other songs sort of call for like high vibrato. I don't know if she could do that. Right. But there, charming. I, I think there actually is audio, and we'll look it up at some point. Um, of they they released decades later the actual audio tracks of Audrey Hepburn singing all the songs, and I know there was conversation at the time like maybe they should have just used these. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I didn't know that they recorded all of it. We'll we'll get to we'll do that with a different song so we yeah, can yeah, move yeah. on. Um, okay, let's go to um, the rain in Spain. The rain in Spain. So yeah, this is. Um, I love this song. Yes. <laughs> She's learning. This is a narrative song. Professor Higgins. He's gonna say, "Where's that bloody plane?" And then I realize they can't say that. Oh, was that they, say, they say soggy. Yeah, but I think soggy. Plane. I think bloody is like a swear in England. I mean, now they say it on like the BBC, but I think once upon a time you weren't supposed to say bloody. It's true that I want to play Henry Higgins. <laughs> Ooh, I would love that. I would actually play Pickering, mm-hmm. um, his friend, who's like not that interesting, but like but fun. is there and like has a lot of speaking lines. So, like you need someone like serviceable to just like do Pickering. Right. That's that's what I would get cast in. I would. I mean, I would actually want to play like one of the origins or mm, it'd be fun to play the, the dad the dad oh the dad yeah oh i would dad. love oh i would love that um <laughs> okay let's get I some could have done we should do we have to do night. i could have danced all night yeah. this is the iconic most iconic song from the bed, show bed, i couldn't go to we bed my head's yeah. too light to try to set it down sleep sleep i couldn't sleep tonight not for all the jewels in the and we're covering so much plot with these two songs in a row. Okay, we could let it keep going, but we it, could. at some point we have to we remember we do have a uh, Broadway binge listen-along Spotify playlist, okay, fine. which you can get to from broadwaybinge.podbean.com, or just search for the Broadway binge listen-along playlist. We put all these songs there. Um, we're not just going to play the whole songs for you. Um, and because then what the would it be? Yeah, exactly. It would just be a playlist. It wouldn't um, be a podcast at all. But it's really great. It's I mean, it's such a fun show. You care about all the characters. Multiple characters have arcs. Eliza... Higgins, her father, all have arcs. Um, we should touch briefly on Freddie, I feel. Freddie's yeah. sort of just the extra character, yeah. which I do like. Like I feel like he holds a role that's traditionally probably held by a, a, like a woman in these old plays, mm-hmm. which is sort of the just like hopeless romantic. Yes. And like he's actually just like an all-around goof, and he gets yeah. one good song, and then which we should play on, on the street, street where you live, live, which is kind of it was kind of the hit of this show, like the yeah. pop standard that people would just sing because it's like a good love song. 
Because you got to have at least one in one of these Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. And um, It's great, though. It's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, there's so many great songs. Okay, yeah. so what I like, though, is the follow-up song, uh, Show Me, which, I mean, I don't know if there's, like, a strong case to be made for this being a feminist musical. Uh, I don't think there is, but... I'll make it. Okay, well, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll get there. Show Me I like, because it's basically, like, the rebuttal to, like, oh, we heard this lovely song, and we should want them to be together. And she's basically just like, you are, like, an annoying man, and your stupid song means nothing, yeah. and I, I like it for that reason. And, and I love how it's, like, plot is happening. Like, she's yeah. not singing a song about what she wants to do and mm-hmm. then going and doing it. She is telling actively him... Actively telling him She's actively song. telling him what she wants from him and then s- sending him away in the song. Yeah, I like the song. Yeah. Speak, and the world is full of singing. <laughs> I just like the song because it feels a little bit like a self-drag of the music they've written for Freddie. Yes. You know what I mean? Complex music. Yeah, it's good music. Yeah, no, this is this is a really good show. <laughs> I mean, the music's really good. Um, I do, and it's sort of accompanying that. If we're gonna follow through, like, is this a feminist show? Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. So I think she sort of grows a lot. She grows beyond Higgins. She realizes she doesn't need Higgins. Right. She does move on past him, and now I'll play a clip of the song where she basically tells Higgins, the world is fine without you. Like, without, yeah. like everything is going to be fine. And then she Heard. That's all good. Yes. That's all good. I'm going to interject that I still think, like, the formula is it's, like, a man who helps improve a woman, and she is, the story we tell is, like, she is improved by it. Like, she shows up at the ball, and everybody's in love with her because now she looks all proper, which is, like, I mean, it's an old trope, so I'm not, I'm not like, trying True. to go in on My Fair Lady. Like, I think that there's a lot of complicated and awesome stuff happening in the show and it's also like a, a symptom of its time but I don't know that it's like a groundbreaking feminist musical you yeah know I mean? no it's, it's not a groundbreaking it's not even I don't even but think it's don't trying know. to be but, but it's, for it has time, good stuff I mean, yeah. no I would also I hear that like I, I, I imagine for its time like she's a kind of a fun badass mm-hmm. character and like we do align ourselves with her over him I think in yeah. the end and when she goes back know. to him in the end it's sort of not it's it's they sort of try to frame it as like she as soon as she realizes she doesn't need him and she could leave him forever, mm-hmm. and then she chooses to go back and live right. with him. And it's not a thing out of necessity, like she can't live on her own. She realizes she can live on her right. own. And so she can make a fully informed, adult, independent decision to live with him because that is what she wants. Right. Now, I don't know if that's the ending I would prefer. I would prefer she just realizes she can live without him and then proceeds to do so. 
but at least it gives us her realizing she can live without him. And I think the idea, hopefully, when she does go back, she'll be doing it on a more even footing with him. Right. Which isn't supported by him then asking her <laughs> to, like, get his slippers immediately. Yeah. <laughs> immediately. And he's like, oh, ha, ha, I'm kidding. The reconciliation but, like, yeah, scene is me, like, get me my slippers. Oh, so here's her without you okay. basically saying. Without you. Right. Yeah. What a fool I was. What a dominated fool. To think you were the earth and sky. What a fool I was, what an elevated fool, what a muck-headed dolt was I. No, my reverberating friend, you are not the beginning and the end. There'll be spring every year without you. <laughs> England still will be here without you. There'll be fruit on the tree and a shore by the sea. There'll be crumpets and tea without you. Uh, I just love how rude it is. I mean, yeah. it's not rude, but I love I love it's like it's fun. I love the diet the conversation songs. I mean, we do have yeah. to give Rogers and Hammerstein credit for yeah. um like this the soliloquy in Carousel is a whole conversation, a whole scene song. Yeah. And I love I think scene songs are my favorite where the whole scene is just one song and it, it goes through multiple melodies and multiple characters. And like they did pioneer that. But when people say that my Fair Lady is perfectly constructed. I do disagree for reasons I'll get into, but it's pretty damn well constructed. Yeah, and like the the I don't know. There's in some ways it reminds me almost of a Gilbert and Sullivan with some of the songs, just because mm-hmm. of the like the tightness of the pattern. In 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 a good way. I'm not a huge yeah. GNS fan, but like in the in the ways that I like GNS, I yeah. enjoy that. I think we have to give them a little bit of "Get Me to the Church on Time." Yeah, yeah, so, because it's the most fun song in the whole show. Yes, yeah, so th- this cake. so um. The her father, Mr. Doolittle, becomes a wealthy middle class person mm-hmm. um, through various shenanigans and decides to get married. And this song, this song really. So I'll, before we play it, I'll get into why I don't think this is perfectly constructed. And again, I have never seen a live version. Maybe that'll change my mind. But in the movie, at least, I was totally on board. But as soon as Eliza moves out for the first time, I feel like the pacing really falls off. There's like another half hour to forty minutes of movie. Yeah where a lot of it is just her deciding whether or not to come back to Higgins and, like, not deciding one way or the other. And then this huge interruption of Get Me to Church on Time, which is probably, like, this isn't a show with huge production numbers. No. So it's probably great for the audience to have a huge production number at the end that probably gets them jazzed and gets them going. But when I'm sitting on my couch at nighttime, it's like, okay, I'm not getting jazzed up because I'm not here in this in front of this big production number, so I'm just bored. Can we get back to the story and But it's so fun! Um, That's my feeling. So, so I might be wrong because we're supposed to be evaluating the stage version, not the movie version. So maybe in the stage version, the pacing is perfect, and it is a perfectly constructed show. But the movie, I think the pacing is really bad in the last 40 minutes. But here's Get Me the Church on Time, which independently of that is a fun song. It's very fun. It was really fun to play the drums, too. Just a few more hours. I'm getting married in the morning. Ding dong, the bells are gonna chime. Pull out the stopper, let's have a whopper. Forget to the church on time. Is that enough for you? Fine. It's really fun, and it just continues to build. It is. It's a stupid song, but it's it's a real crowd pleaser. Yeah, no, I believe it. No, um, I'm I'm with you that like, I don't really know how this relates to the back to the main plot. I will say something. I think 
uh, is true for this show, though, is like a lot of it's about world building, right? And like mm-hmm. a lot of it, I think, is like American audiences really enjoyed My Fair Lady because it's like, oh, the fun Cockney world of London, like yeah. how fun and imaginative and exotic, and I don't know. Yeah, I mean that gets back to like the place that Julie Andrews holds for us too, of like I th- it immediately immediately makes me think of Mary Poppins, obviously like a different setting, but like yeah, Burton. Bur- yeah, I don't know. Perfect segue. Do you know the story about Mary Poppins in this? In My Fair Lady? No. Okay, so this is, a, this is a famous and wonderful story. Great. So Julie Andrews was the star on Broadway, and this made her a huge star. At She's this point, awesome and lovely. She, she was a child actress in England, and her first big Broadway show, she had a minor role in The Boyfriend, like what? Boy Space Friend. I don't know exactly who that show's by, but uh, she was in that show, and then she got cast in this show as the lead, and it was a huge hit. My Fair Lady became the longest-running show of all time when it mm. came out. Yeah, so the show ran 2,717 performances, which wow. broke the record for longest-running musical. So this was a hit, and Julie Andrews became a, a star, as much as one can be a star who's never been in a movie before. Mm-hmm. But the makers of the movie decided that she was not a big enough name, and they wanted a bigger name. And, I mean, to be fair, at the time, Audrey Hepburn was a bigger name, might still be in some circles. Uh, but now that like everyone in the whole world has seen Mary Poppins and the Sound of Music, I don't I don't think she's a yeah. bigger name. But like sure. at the time, Audrey Hepburn was a bigger name, so they cast her even though she couldn't sing that great. I mean, we heard her and she's fine. But she's so, um, no Julie Andrews. So Julie Andrews is very upset. Um, but luckily, Disney came to Colin and they're like, "Hey, we're making a movie at the same time that My Fair Lady is being shot. It's called Mary Poppins. Would you like to be in it?" So Julie Andrews joined Mary Poppins, became a huge celebrity <laughs> from Mary Poppins, and then won uh, the Oscar for Best Actress, or at least the Golden Globe for Best Actress. And in one of those speeches, either the Globes or the Oscars, in her speech, she thanked uh, Mr. Warner, one of the Warner brothers, and said, like, oh, I could, I thank you, Mr. Warner. I never could have gotten this award without you, because he was the one who chose to not cast her in uh-huh. My Fair Lady. That's so, nice. I love that. That's petty yeah. in a way that I appreciate. Yes. <laughs> so she got the last laugh, um, and we're all better that's off, great. because without, who knows if she would have been in the Sound of Music movie and everything. And that's why, at that point, she's replacing the Broadway actress who is in Sound Weird. of Music, because she's a big name now. So it's a total reversal by then. Um, it's weird. Yeah. This is making me think about, like, we've talked before about, like, all the celebrities who are now going onto Broadway and, like, you know, I feel like replacing more legitimate actors. But it's interesting because I guess it's kind of a conversation that's been happening since forever. It's like whoever the bigger star is gets to play the role in the movie and now it's sort of doubling back into, like, who can do it on Broadway suddenly has to be the bigger star from the movies. I don't know. Interesting to think about. Okay, here we go. I found this before we start rating the show. This is Audrey Hepburn's audio from Wouldn't It Be Loverly, which is the very, like, vibrato-y song. This, this guy again. Love him. Very. So it's different from yeah. the other two, but I like it because it's in character. They might have made the right choice. Okay, okay I'm going to back up though saying, like, I imagine she knew. Oh, shit, 
I imagine she knew it was going to be replaced. So like, I don't know that she's like committing vocally in the way of like, let me sing this, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, don't really know. I love it. I think I would rather watch this version where I get to see her acting the song because she acts really well. It sounds like her and she hits all the notes. She just doesn't have that beautiful vibrato-y voice with a nice tone. Right. So I think they probably actually did make the right choice for I mean, like 1964. So the movie is from 64. Uh, the musical is from 56. I think they probably made the right choice, especially because Marnie Nixon didn't go full Julie Andrews. She did sort of keep it like cockney, keep it a little rough. Right. Um, I think it was the right choice to have Audrey on screen and then Marnie Nixon sing. But I, if I was going to watch the movie again, I, I would want to watch it with these original Yeah, snacks. it's like fun to see. I like this as just as a bit of trivia for us to engage with. It's for the fans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we just rate this thing, do you think? <laughs> yeah, let's just rate it already. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. I enjoyed talking about My Fair Lady more than I've enjoyed talking about some of our other shows. Yeah, I mean, this is the it's first, fun. like, great show that we've talked about in a while. <laughs> um, what are you saying? Are you saying that Pajama Game wasn't, Pajama Game wasn't a great show? Today? Yeah, that's, that's what that's I'm saying. That's exactly what we're saying. Um, okay, so... First, was it important? Oh, that's tricky. That, I hate this. This is, rating system's hard. <laughs> this is tricky, because we've been talking basically about was it good. I mean, we have talked about how it evolved the form, but, like... All right, look. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I have an idea. I have an idea in mind. Okay, me too. What do you? For me, it's a five and a half. Okay, I'm probably being generous because I like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Lerner and Low coming into prominence, um, the gift of Julie Andrews. Um, I don't know, and it, 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 we talked about how it's innovative in the way that it adapted uh, the the play. Yeah, and it was like a really a new a new thing. Yeah, so I gave, I'm giving it a seven, which Great. is all the same reasons you gave. Seven might be a little high. No, that's good. Uh, well, on the one hand, sometimes I think it's too high, and then sometimes I think it's too low. And by sometimes, I mean like in the five seconds since I've thought of it. Yes. Like two point five of those seconds, I thought it was too high, and the others I thought it was too low. Then just keep it right where it is. Yeah, so it'll say where it is. Um, it definitely advanced the form, but it's not like all Broadway shows were suddenly different after it came out in the same way that was the case with Oklahoma. It's this is just another evolution just much much more of an evolution than Carousel or South Pacific were, but still, like, we're still on the same road we were before. And right. if it wasn't this show, it would have been something else. Correct. Um, okay. okay, okay, I so, buy this, I so buy this. we'll talk, was it good? Was it good? <sighs> I mean, I just... Okay, um, okay. Um, you go first. I'm going to give it a nine. I was also going to give it a nine. Great. Okay, yep. if, um, for the first, probably, it's a three-hour movie, which is too long. If for the first two hours of the movie, I was like, this is a ten... Right. I don't know if it's a 10 now, it's not, but like in terms of was it good, when it came out, yes, this was the best musical of all time, easily. Yeah. Then I started to not like the last hour, I got mm-hmm. bored, but right. because the stage version is probably better paced than the movie version I watched, and also because even though it was worse, like that first part was still so good, I'm still giving it a 9, which is a damn high score, but like... Yeah, no, I mean, it's like legitimately fun, it exists in this world that's super clear and exciting to immerse yourself in, and then also, I don't know, we talked about how like active the songs are all of the interplay it's just really enjoyable like it holds my attention in a way that i don't know that anything else we've reviewed this far necessarily does on its own you know yeah a few others have for me south pacific guys and dolls Mm -hmm. and you get your gun maybe yeah um all right do you want to go first for is it good what do you think is today Ah, it's tricky um yeah i guess i'll give it like a seven and a half Okay. Maybe that's high. I mean, I no. I'm giving it a seven. Yeah. I mean, I think that in a, in a lot of ways, I'm like, I don't know. Let's see how the revival is in 2018. Like, you know, yeah. It's a, it for me in some ways it has like a throwback feel that I enjoy. Like, I just it's an old style musical that's really fun. Um, is it good today? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's like a character driven story, 
um, in a way that I still think has a lot of merit. Like, I, I think it holds up, I guess. Like, I don't think it falls apart in a way that, I don't know, like, uh, what's one? On the Town. I don't know if On the Town has anything exciting to say to us today. Yeah, it does not. Yeah, in a way that, like, I think, you know, My Fair Lady, obviously it's about Cockney London, but, like, out of context, I still think, like, the plot holds up. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and that's why I gave it a 7. Base, I just gave it a point five lower than Hannah did, but yeah, so good. Yeah, no, the music is really good. This is really good. Um, I don't know, like we don't have a lot of like insightful commentary maybe yeah. about it, but this is just a really good show, and I hope you enjoyed us playing some music. Yeah, clips right. Yeah, you. I mean, you know, and it's yeah, it's a beautiful show. Yeah, if you live in New York, <laughs> and if, if the revival really does happen, because I know a lot of revivals like announce they're gonna happen, and then someone updates Wikipedia to say it's gonna happen, and then it doesn't. So like, I can't. Yeah. So if it does happen, and, <laughs> and you're in the New York area, you should make an effort to go. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I will. I will certainly go. We should see it together. I we should. That would be really cute for us. Yeah. I I do feel like I am interested to see what they do with it today, just because we live in a different time, and like you know, in a lot of ways, um, not to like beat a dead horse, but like the I don't know the gender and class dynamics of the show. I think are part of like why I wouldn't give it a 10 for today mm -hmm. just because, you know, I don't know that they hold up particularly well. And so I'm curious about, like, is that something they're going to try to solve or is that something that actually you can just sort of do and be like, this was the period and it's challenging. Yeah. You know what I mean? I hope they don't try to solve it. I think it would work if it's exactly the same as the original, just with a little more chemistry between the leads mm -hmm. so that it doesn't feel like she's giving in to him when she goes back. It feels like you really believe that this is what she wanted and right. he needed to move towards her and he needed to change and become a better person right. for her to agree to come back to him. I think it can work without mm -hmm. having to change it if the casting is just right. Yeah. And I, I, and I really like the guy who they cast. He's so likable in The Crown. I can totally imagine him <laughs> playing a jerk. Right. But he, I know that he can be likable whereas like, Rex Harrison is, is never going to seem like a cuddly person, ever. I mean, it's true that my dream cast would be a lady playing Henry Higgins, but that's mm. my own personal preferences. Um, you know, I think Jane Fonda could be really... Not Jane Fonda. Jane Lynch Jane could Lynch. be really good in the Ooh, role. Oh, Jane Lynch could Jane be Lynch good Jane Lynch could be role. really good in the role. That's all I'm saying. Um, and, and I'm excited to see uh, the Queen of Thorns from yeah. Game of Thrones. I'm forgetting the actress's name. Um, as Mrs. Doolittle. She also played my uh, my favorite Bond girl from my second favorite Bond movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service starring George Lazenby. Diana Rigg. She was really good. She's the one who James Bond marries. Do you, you think, know James Bond gets married? No, you think Jeremy likes Broadway musicals? You should see his James Bond ranking. No, you should, you should see the 26 Star Wars crochet figurines that are right behind <laughs> us right now. Uh, it's true that... Um, Jeremy is a very passionate man. Yeah, I mean, James, the James Bond in Star Wars podcast space was already fully saturated. Yeah, but, right. So we're really. But Broadway, there was an opening. So that's. <laughs> and we, we got right in there. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, this has been fun. Yeah, this has been great. Why um, don't you take us out, Jeremy? And just to update everyone on what the new scoreboard looks like, My Fair Lady is now slotted in at number four with a score of 45 points. It's right behind South Pacific with 52, and then Oklahoma and Guys and Dolls are tied in second for 51. So it's fourth place. It just edged out The King and I by one point. Uh, and you get your guns right behind that. Then you have uh, Showboat behind that and Three Penny. And then all the bad ones. So new number four. And if you take the runtime of the show into account on that version of the list, My Fair Lady is number three behind Oklahoma and South Pacific. So either way, it's behind Oklahoma and South Pacific. Take, don't worry about the runtimes. And then Guys and Dolls also passes My Fair Lady. Be sure to subscribe to Broadway Binge on any podcast app, then you'll get each episode as soon as it comes out. Or you could go to our website, broadwaybinge.podbean.com, where we have some good pictures. We're on Twitter, at Broadway underscore Binge. Please ask us questions on Twitter. We will answer them on air we if will. you want. 
Um, we have an Instagram at Broadway Binge. No and underscore. No underscore. And we've also got the Spotify Listen Along playlist. So, um, Hannah, are we doing Damn Yankees next? Yes, we are. Okay, so we're doing Damn Yankees next. I don't know Which what to actually think. came out um, a year before My Fair Lady, but... Uh, we can do what we want. We run we this do podcast. We want. Yeah, there's like some guest scheduling issues, so that's why we're doing Damn Yankees next. Don't tell them. They don't need to know. Okay, fine. Yeah, we're doing Damn Yankees next, and we don't need a reason to go out of order. Because we can do what we want, because we run this podcast. And then um, after that, it's West Side Story and The Music Man and Gypsy all in a row. And then Sound of Music. All gravy from here on out. West Side Story, Music Man, Gypsy, Sound of Music in a row. Can you believe it? I can't believe it, and I want to institute um, a new thing. I think we should just do fan listener shout-outs at the end of every episode. Uh, from now on, just because I know that we have a few dedicated listeners. Yes. Um, so I'm going to begin. Um, today's episode shout-out is going to be Jeremy Cohen, wherever you are in Philadelphia. I hope you're having a great day, um, and we appreciate your patronage. Yes. Good, kind sir. And I've got a few dedicated listeners who text me after every episode, <laughs> but I don't want to shout them out without No, we got to make them wait for it. Um, so uh, t- to you people who text me after every episode, <laughs> if you want to shout-out next time, ask for it so right. I know I have permission. Uh, Jeremy Cohen, uh, I hope that this is, is uh, fun to <laughs> Okay, 